Hello, Hi. Cindy. Hi, nice good to see you. You are the most requested guest on uh, mm. my interviews. Everyone's been asking for you. Yeah, I don't know. I, you probably don't watch this podcast, but a few episodes back. All right, I, I mentioned um, somatic empathy as a as a concept, and I, I explained it very poorly. I'm sure. Um, and I mentioned your name, saying that I'd actually learned the term from a friend of mine, Cindy, and then and said obviously that you were doing a lot of work on it. And then yes, didn't get around to talking to you for ages. But now seems like a great time because you just got your uh, new book being yep. released. Which is called oh you've got it oh hold it another up. self well it's probably going to come out back to front yeah it's called another yeah. self how your body helps you understand others which is you know another way of saying somatic empathy it's a book about somatic empathy and um, it's the because I'm an uh, you know was in a previous life I was a biologist you know forty years ago so I've looked at it from that angle like what 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 does modern biology have to say about this weird thing where we feel what other people feel so you know if I kind of um I sort of need to distinguish what people normally think about empathy from somatic empathy because it's a kind of specialist facet of empathy yeah so if I um if I'm sitting talking to you and you tell me that something terrible has happened you know you've lost a really good friend then I being a normal person would feel cognitive empathy. I would be able to work out that that would feel awful. Yeah. I would by analogue, by analogy, I would be able to say, oh, that would be terrible if I lost my dear friend. Yeah. So that's that's known as cognitive empathy. And that's what most people uh think of when they think about um, you know, how we understand each other on that kind of deep sympathetic level. Uh, but underneath that cognitive empathy, there's something going on which is an embodied sharing of your condition. Yeah, so, um, and it's nothing to do with language. So if I came into the room, same person, same situation, and you didn't tell me that anything awful had happened, I'd still be able to feel it. And I might ask, is, you know, is something wrong? <laughs> you know, because I would start to feel the emotional um, alteration that had happened with you. And What's interesting is that, um, you know, scientists are just starting to get interested in this, in, in, the, in the nuances of what's going on, because there's an awful lot going on. And one of the reasons science hasn't looked at this before is because of complexity. And um, that's a kind of mathematical term. It doesn't just mean because it's difficult. It means because there's like there are so many variables that it's quite hard to do experiments and, you know, so what's happening now is we've got science shifting from sort of reductionist science into holistic science. So they don't use the word holistic because it's been, you know, ruined. <laughs> so they've gone into systems science. So by looking at the human as a system, interacting with another system, another human, they can work out the maths and the predictions of, you know, how these two systems interact. And they don't interact like an apple bouncing into another apple, funnily enough. <laughs> you know, so it isn't the old physics stuff. It's really getting into um, some very interesting uh, psychobiology. Yeah. 
Sure. And it, it, and reading your writing as well. Um, I actually finished the book uh, yesterday. Yeah, I finished the book yesterday. I enjoyed it very much. And it was it? Great. Yeah, it, it was amazing. It reminded me very much of, of many of our conversations that we've had um, over the years, because maybe before I ask you some questions on it, I, I should just uh, let people know who, who listen to this. I've known Cindy for a long time, almost 20 years or something now, I, I guess. You when you were 26. Oh, 26. Oh, so seven, 17 years or something like that. Yeah, a fair while. And we, we met on the Qigong course. And I, I remember meeting Cindy. And I remember uh, thinking how polar opposite you were to me in so many ways, because I remember at that stage, I was a complete brick. Not only could I not feel, I, I, I was probably, if you had a spectrum of somatic empathy, I would be on the no somatic empathy, sort of sociopathic end of the scale. And it, it very much translated for me into the inability to feel anything around the concept of chi either. So I was just kind of going through the motions, but had no kind of feedback to the insides. And I remember meeting you. And actually, many of the other people, if you don't mind me saying, you had your level of what I would call sensitivity at the time, I found really woolly. But you had a, a groundedness in the way that you experience things and also your, your view on life that um, actually grabbed my attention. And it was kind of, I think, really sort of getting to know you that inspired me to actually go deeper into trying to actually feel for myself what was going on. So it was very important meeting you um, for me. So thank you for that. But it, it, it was interesting that right from the beginning, we were talking about these concepts. And I think in the beginning, if I, don't, if I sort of uh, let you explore this a bit, what fascinated me the most was early on, I think, before you kind of came up with the concepts for this book or explored it, was very much it was your diagnostics in shiatsu, wasn't it? Is that fair to say that really you kind of explored it through? Yeah, I did, um, you know, because you, could, you can't, because you couldn't buy a book, you couldn't go on a course and, you know, you couldn't, I couldn't ask anybody what was going on in it. Um, but basically when I started to train in body work, I immediately felt what they were feeling and of course you don't know at the time whether it's just your imagination um or yeah you kind of just assume it must be your imagination but I kept checking and over over 20 years of doing body work I kept checking my what I was feeling with the client and constantly getting confirmation mm. um and again that you know that's not very scientific method it's people often tell you what they want you you know what they think you want to hear but um trial and error just what what used to be called experience <laughs> sure so you build an experiential database of yes. trusting what you're feeling yeah and it took a long time to trust what i was feeling and again it was really hard to find uh, anything written down and, and certainly in the scientific community that you know, it was way out there. But there's been some big changes lately in in the approach, as I say, um, in, in the biological sciences, mainly, you know, getting AI, getting an ability to analyze masses of data so they can tackle complex right. systems and how brains, one brain um, couples with another brain. I mean, it never used to be possible. It was just it was just out of our out of our range of um, ability. And now um, neuroscientists can put, you know, uh, sensors on one person's head and sensors on another person's head and correlate what's going on while they're interacting. And that's totally brand new. You know, we used to just 
um, look at people in isolation in a in a laboratory and sure, sure. stick things in their brain and see what happens. Which I think they should have done to you. Slightly dismissive of <laughs> the whole of neuroscience there. Which <laughs> That's all right. And, and um, for those who maybe haven't seen this phenomenon as well or experienced well. That's not true. I expect everybody's experienced it in life to varying degrees, haven't they? But to see somebody um, kind of viscerally go through that process, I remember seeing you do several uh, shiatsu treatments and working with people. And what you're talking about uh, is not just uh, even necessarily just a feeling, is it? Because I watched it kind of map onto your body and I've seen you go through sort of like gasp and stretch and, and have a kind of whole load of experiences, the same as your patient is it fair to say has stored in their body rather than what at that very moment? Yeah. So this brings us down to what's actually going on. And, um, Mm. you know, the, the first question that people want to know is, you know, is it me or is it them? Um, which is a long answer, which I will get to, (laughs) but the other question is, are you actually catching something from this person? You know, is there a transfer (laughs) of something, you know, because people, do often say, oh, I got very bad energy. I caught bad energy from that person. And it's like, so I need to dismiss all that because that's not not necessary. You don't have to have that concept because there are other explanations. Um, okay. So the um, so what is going on? If you're working on someone or even you just walk into a room and you feel um, you feel bad intentions from someone, you know, that's quite, it's quite easy to pick up malintent um, for all sorts of reasons, you know, going back to it through evolutionary past, we're very good at picking up malintent. And um, the the thing is that our, our body, uh, our minded body has evolved to assess people incredibly quickly. So there's this thing called subliminal perception where you can perceive what's going on around you without any awareness at all. And this is one of the one of the ways we're getting into somatic empathy is that your system is looking for potential danger or potential opportunities. Um, you know, biology is all about death and sex. <laughs> so it's sure. like, yeah. Scanning, your unconscious is scanning for opportunities or dangers and the speed of reaction in your body is so fast it could be one four thousandth of a second and scientists know this because they flash pictures flash images at people um anything under a tenth of a second and you can't see it all right okay yeah sure so if I and and knowing that people are innately scared of spiders, they flash images of spiders very fast. The person can't see them, but their brain fires in the fear center. Right. And okay. the fear center yeah. kicks off um, really, really quickly, almost to the point of immediacy. Sure. And the person has no idea that they've seen anything scary, but their brain has activated the fear centers. Now, that system is scanning your clients. It's scanning the whole room all the time. So even before you've kind of said, hello, how are you? You know, your body has taken on a a sophisticated assessment 
of the potential threat, potential opportunity that is in your visual field. But it also happens through your ears. So you can flash a sound at someone too quickly that they can't hear it, but their brain will respond. And that that speed rather than uh, whatever the word is, you know, like within the auditory spectrum or? Yeah, yeah, just the speed. Right, okay, Um, Yeah. yeah. So literally just, you know, flashing a sound or a sight so quickly that your sensory system can't do it. I mean, as humans, we're really limited to this sensory, you know, box. Sure. If things happen too quickly, we don't notice them. If they happen too slowly, we don't notice them. <laughs> and that's right. not okay. to do with Oh, yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Um, anyway, where was I going with this? Um, yeah, so even words, you can flash words at people really quickly or you can speak words to people really quickly and they won't notice them but the brain has registered the meaning of the word so this came this was discovered in the 60s and was called subliminal perception and of course advertisers got really excited yeah we can make people buy our product and they won't know that they're you know and so it was banned in the UK I looked up yesterday on Google and apparently it's not banned in the US so still still not banned no. That doesn't surprise me. They're supposed to voluntarily disclose whether they're subliminally advertising to you. Anyway. Right. Okay. Fair enough. So that system is is already responding. And it mm-hmm. isn't just in your brain. So if you wire up people's skin, they'll be getting a flash of uh, electrical conductance through the skin. Uh, pupil size will be changing. Blood flow will be changing to the face. So you're getting these instant reactions. So what seems to happen after that, after that initial assessment is, and that that's completely uh, unconscious, is that that gets filtered to whether this person is of interest to you or not. According to sex or death? <laughs> Basically, yeah, you know. Right, okay, yep. Primal well, stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's what it evolved for, but actually we can use it sure. for anything. So... Um, and the people who study unconscious um, behavior are saying that it it we use it for anything. So you can use it for like spotting how many red cars there are, you know, and it it will alert you to how many red cars are going past. So we adapted okay. this system that evolved uh, for sex and death to anything. So once once this part of your unconscious decides, yeah, this person is of interest for any reason. And in a therapeutic situation, they're of interest because you're the therapist. Yeah, you would hope so. So you're interested in them. Yes. What happens when the interest is um, fired up is your attention shifts. Um, so all all I've talked about before happens without your conscious attention, and now your conscious attention comes in, and then some magic happens, as in when your attention is there. Um, you embody what you perceive about that person. It's strangely enough called em- right. Okay. Perception. Yeah. Okay. And so it's oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Right. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, so I was curious. So the attention gets involved. It kind of. Uh, so is it safe to say that as well as embodying it to a certain degree, it also translates it for you to understand? It. That's exactly why you embody it, it before right. language. Yeah. Um, you know, because we share this somatic empathy with uh, mammals and birds. Mm-hmm. Um, all the ones that have been tested anyway have shown it. So um, 
the only way you can under, truly understand another individual without language is to feel how they feel, mm -hmm. is to take on their condition, um, to get under their skin and feel what it's like to be them and then come out again. Okay. And this is a really quick and really efficient way to assess other individuals pre-language, pre-verbal. So um, I don't need to know that um, you don't need to tell me if you're anxious um, mm -hmm. because I will feel anxious myself as we're talking to each other. Um, you know, your dog doesn't need to understand that you're sad. It will feel the physiological changes. <laughs> of sure. your yes. Yeah. And will know that something's wrong. Um, so they, so it takes away this need for any kind of clever intellect or any kind of theory of mind. You know, it's very, very primitive, very, very basic. But even though it's basic and primitive and ancient and da 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 da, -da it's the foundation of all the rest of empathy. So sure, yeah. when when scientists test boys with psychopathic traits, sure. they find that boys, these boys are perfectly capable of cognitively working out that someone is feeling sad because their best friends died, but they don't feel it. Right. And because they don't feel it, um, the quality of their cognitive empathy is different. Um, and we we often interpret it as false. You know, they say, oh, dear, how sad. That must be terrible. You know, <laughs> but you know they're not feeling it. And we do kind of expect people to share the pain in themselves. Otherwise, it's like, you know, those are just words, you know. <laughs> right. Okay. So, yeah, that, that, that all makes sense. And it, it's um, – so I guess one of the questions I'd have straight away is how much do you think that when the – obviously, pure attention is quite – difficult it's yeah. a it's a skill right or it's a quality that must be developed so a lot of intention is kind of carried along with attention they're kind of accidentally yeah. intertwined aren't they yeah. so i wonder how much um or what do you well do you have any comments really on how much people can distort that message according to their own projections or something like this wow i mean yeah it's um when we get to the question of well you know is it is it me or is it them uh, my answer yeah. is it's all you you know Everything that's happening to you is all yours. <laughs> sure. um, and the reason the book is called Another Self is because the, the latest understanding of all this stuff is that we simulate another self in order to understand. So we, we make the other self in ourselves to feel it okay. and therefore get that deep understanding, that pre-verbal understanding. Um, so I've generated it. Um, it's mine. And what I can generate, what simulations I can generate about other people depends on my life experience mm. and my subjective interpretation. And interpretation is a really sticky area. You know, I often find, especially with animal communicators for some reason, is that there's an over-interpretation. So, you know, yes. um, that's even safe to say from pet owners, I sometimes think, the amount they project onto their their pet. Little Timmy the dog would like tea at 2 p.m. or something, and I, yeah. I often think there's a projection there. Yeah, so you can, you know, it's really easy to um, uh, share cross-species. Emotional contagion 
is really strong between species for all sorts of very good evolutionary reasons. You know, if there's a danger uh, in the jungle and one animal has spotted it and none of the others have, you need that emotional contagion of fear and get away to spread really quickly. Sure. They haven't got time to go around saying, oh, wait, you know, there's something going on down there. So they have to, it has to be contagious and it has to be rapid. And it, and different species have to be able to feel. I mean, a predator has to be able to feel the weakest member of the pack. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's very specific. Yeah. So, so is that predator then feeling... It's funny. So I guess there's some um, somatic empathizing for the the biggest amount of fear amongst all of the animals. Which one? I don't. I don't know. That? I mean, I don't think you know that that would be really complex research project. Right. Okay. <laughs> how do you Book ask? Two. So, Tiger, how do you feel about this? <laughs> sure, sure, sure. But, but what we can know is that they they produce embodied simulations of others they pr they produce embodied simulations between species and mm -hmm. so um you know it's another added method that predator and prey can use to sure. assess safety or weakness you know and we're doing that all the time still but we're yeah. you know we've got our intellect uh yakking away over the top and you see it within almost any social group setting to a certain degree, don't you? When a bunch of people, uh, I always, I always think when a bunch of people come together who don't know each other, maybe a friend's dinner party or something, that you almost have that kind of uh, predator and prey yeah. dynamic going on there, where people figuring out who's a threat, who's higher on the pecking order, or whatever, and uh, same kind of thing, right? Who's fit? Yeah. Yeah, well, they're, they're, sex and death comes into it as always. <laughs> it's, it, when you're talking about this as well, it reminds me of. Um, Maybe I'm wrong in this, but it reminds me of like if say you're very, very upset and something very bad has happened, and then I've got a, a friend of a similar age or or whatever who who's around me, they can often uh, I guess subconsciously or through this this method empathize quite exact details on what's what's going on because of their life experience, I, I guess, and they have a bigger data bank to draw from, right? The kind of memories. But if you have around a, a child, like a kid, a kid, I always think, picks up in a smaller spectrum. So it knows sad, it knows happy, it knows danger, but it, the child doesn't have the experience that it can't draw upon such a big database. Is that fair to say? That's right. I mean, it, the embodied perception is really fascinating. It's because um, there's this difference between sensing something, you know, like mm -hmm. a machine, um, so just detecting light and actually perceiving and perceiving has me, you know, we need meaning, don't we? So sure. there's no use me just perceiving light. Um, I have to interpret the meaning of that light into trees and sky and floor and houses. Yeah. Otherwise okay. yeah. I'll just fall over. So sure. I have to, perception has this massive um, embedded meaning. And the reason that we, embody while we perceive is so that we can extract meaning so um if i um if i'm talking to you and you get angry my my simulation of your anger won't be interpreted as anger unless i have experienced anger myself in which case when i experience the changes i'll go oh he's feeling angry you know because right. sure, i'm quite yes. familiar with anger but um, when I'm 
when I experience somatic empathy with with things that I have no experience of, it just feels weird. Okay, you know, sure, and I yeah. Have, and I just don't know what it is. I remember you palpating me once and saying it felt like alien gibberish coming out of my brain. So that's not a that's not a good sign. <laughs> that was your direct words. Was it? <laughs> yes. Yeah. That doesn't sound like me. I'm much more polite than that. Oh, really? Okay. Well, you know me well enough. <laughs> so, so you know that you know that. Um, obviously, I'm going to throw a spanner in the works here, or definitely not, because I know you have okay. a, a yeah. view on this. But it's not something that you mentioned in the book because the book, um, I think, it's fair to say, was written not from a scientific perspective. It makes it sound cold. It wasn't that. It was very personal as well. And I could see you in it, the way you were talking about not just your previous cases. You gave some examples in there, but also I, I could I could see your previous kind of. Um, uh, not zoology background, animal research, whatever it was yeah, you were doing, yeah. uh, whatever the word is. Yeah, it's lots of animals. Like the dog copying the limp of the owner, which I've seen, actually. I've seen that very exact example. I always find that very cute. Um, but you, you kind of, it was very warm, but it was also quite uh, Western. In yes. Its, in its viewpoint, yes. I guess for the readership, right? Yeah. Uh, who my, you're speaking yeah. So doing my research on what books are available, there are lots yes. of books about empathy which are not scientific and they're all experiential mm. and subjective and, yeah, and there are quite a few academic books that are really heavy and undigestible about um, empathy at that end. And I want, as I did with my last book, Wild Health, I want to tread I want I want to close this bridge and and keep you know bring both sides together really is that sure. you know neither of you are wrong but you're not talking to each other sure I get it and as someone said to me yesterday so you're going to cut a path cleanly between both audiences <laughs> cleanly <laughs> well I well that, that's pretty much going back to what I was saying about what I thought when I met you that again you were talking about same kind of things that I'd met people speak about before but they were a bit too woolly for me because yeah. I'd come from a you know martial arts background into the Qigong world and you were speaking about it in a more grounded um way so I found that appealing so it makes sense to me that that you presented that way for sure yeah so it's uh, yeah so there's there's it's it's not about uh the book is not about um, the sort of stuff that you do, Damo. It's not Hippie-ish about nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but I will. I do think it's relevant because it it just bridges this massive divide um, between you know the rational, analytical, and the intuitive, experiential, and they are two completely different ways of thinking. Mm. And the other week, you did a a podcast where you were talking about left and right brain with Lawrence. What you call him? Uh, Lawrence Blair. Yeah. Yeah, and um, I mean, lots of people use this left brain, right brain stuff, but I, I don't like it because it's very brain centric. Sure. And the thing about, I prefer to divide because there are these two distinct neurological systems that are that we use for understanding something. Okay. And the yeah. rational analytical relies on the cerebral cortex you know the really clever part of being human but not humans aren't the only ones that have cerebral cortex but anyway uh, and the other lot the intuitive experiential is this really ancient intelligence that's so poorly understood and that's where somatic empathy is taking place and I but I didn't want to only talk to people who are already intuitive experiential I wanted to bring some rational analytical folk along 
and say, come on, you know, it's not nonsense. This stuff is the foundation of your rational analytical thought processes. Yes. Well, but also this this is where I think this comes in as well from another direction that is obviously the field, well, you're in as well. You're also a Qigong teacher and practitioner of a long time. But very much the process of teaching Qigong, I believe, uses not just somatic empathy, but the other thing you mentioned briefly in the book at the beginning, which I'm going to pronounce wrong, kinesthetic empathy. Is that how you say it? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Kinesthetic, which is something that I think kinesthetic empathy, which or maybe you could d- describe it, the difference between the two, if if there is one. Well, I'm not. Yeah. Um, the the first chapter of the book is really just showing all the different terms that people use um, for, and they're overlapping. But to try and pull them apart, I think, would be really. Difficult. I think kinesthetic empathy is a component of somatic empathy. I think you need, you know, you need to feel how the other is feeling in order to sense the proprioceptive changes that are going on in the body. Um, But yeah, and and you're either good at that or you're not. It's quite it's quite an interesting little limited 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 limited. limited. I don't you mean. So do do you not do you not think something like that uh, can be trained? Do you think it's uh, inherent? In yes, I mean I've noticed that over twenty odd years of trying to uh, of applying somatic empathy, that it's got stronger and stronger to the point where I now find it uncomfortable to watch a film in case there's some violence because it will hurt me. Sure, you, you have know, to and watch that behind the couch. That never used to happen. So I think it's getting okay. that's getting worse. That kind it's of um, physical pain, not emotional pain. Physical pain, like actual. Oh yeah, no. I mean, right, you okay. know how um, you might get a tingle in your foot if if you watch someone's toe being stumped. stumped. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yes. You, yeah, you I don't share like that. that sort of tingle. <laughs> well, well, mine can be really strong, and it's it's not you know it's unpleasant. So. Sure. It, it's funny when I drink. There's oh, some sorry, really extreme people who've got pain contagion so strongly that their life is very difficult. Um, mm. And I mention them uh, a little bit in the book mm. in that uh, they're usually called mirror touch synesthetes, but they, if they see someone being touched, they feel the touch on their own skin. So if they see someone being hurt, they they feel the pain as if they've been hurt themselves. And that was that was one of the ways that scientists got interested in somatic empathy. It was like, right, okay. what's going on with these guys? You know, um, can it can it leave marks? Can it can it create the body? To, I just it, no. I worried about some like um, uh, stigmata or something. Jump into an extreme example or something. Well, like that. I don't know how far um, this process can go, but we are imagining, simulating what is going mm-hmm. on for others all the time. And for some people, that's really, really uncomfortable. And so, you know, this is why I mention all the mental health um, applications. You know, if you start to look at, if you start to look at some of the mental health problems from from the perspective of a somatic empathy problem, you know, if you sure. go into a room and you can feel what everyone is feeling, it's chaos. Yeah, I don't think I'd like that. No, and no, so. Okay. You know, this ability to be able to separate self from other is mm. a really important component in managing mental health. And there's a lot of interest now in looking at 
you know, the, I don't know if you know the new buzzword introception, but it's basically how you feel inside and academic papers on introception have gone through the roof. So just realize that, you know, this is, it's not so much a mental problem in a lot of the mental health problems, but it's an interoception problem. Yeah. So they're feeling way too much about mm, what okay. everyone else around them is feeling and consequently appear completely dysregulated. Yeah, I, I, can, I can equate with that working in when I worked in mental health um, only as a, you know, as a social worker rather than a therapist. I was normally going in for a very practical role. I wasn't really getting involved on, on too deep a level on, on that level. But I, I definitely learned very quickly that the best thing I could do was center and calm myself and not go into that space if I had any stress or anything like this so I'd have to walk around the car park outside the psychiatric unit for a few times chill out and then go in and then people would be a lot better with me and it would be calm and it would be fine and it'd be okay but if I went even slightly stressed yeah. I couldn't hide it from anybody at all yeah like they could pick it up so quick and the same kind of stress I could hide from most people for sure yeah and it does make it does give us a bit of responsibility because especially if you're a teacher and everyone's attention is on you, you do have a responsibility to um, to model what is uh, is appropriate for the situation. So, yeah, you don't want to be coming in and modelling um, any kind of stress if you're trying to relax people. <laughs> no, totally. And this, is, this, is, and this, this comes, brings me back to where I was saying I want to throw a spanner into the works a little bit. Yeah. Um, and maybe, maybe you'll disagree with this, so I'm curious to get your, your take on it. But it, I think that, I feel that as a, as a teacher, when you're talking about something like, say, transmission or tier mission or something, that you're kind of, I think one part of, one aspect of it is that you're tapping into this somatic or kinesthetic empathy, but you're kind of reverse engineering it, and then you are projecting it out into the people that you teach, in a way, so that the stronger you build that field, that you can make subtler and subtler changes within yourself. And then the degree of chi that you put out can almost draw people into somatically empathizing with you, if you get mm -hmm. what I mean. Does that make sense? I do. And there's no, it's not in a book because there's no research on that uh, reciprocity. Right. It's okay. Known, it's known that there is a reciprocity. It's a good word, isn't it? Um, it is. I'm not going to repeat it. <laughs> get it wrong it's easy for you to say but um, it's not this sort of one-way clunky system of I look mm. at you and I simulate what's going on for you end of story there's a yes. there's a conversation um and the, that conversation the direction and what's going on in that conversation depends on um the people involved so you have you as the teacher in that situation, you can't possibly have your attention on every single individual, but they have their attention on you. Yes. So there's a direction there, as in they are simulating what's going on for you rather than the other way around. But there's the intention bit, and there's also okay. past connection. So, you know, not much research been done on this, but I suspect the brain coupling that happens um we haven't talked about brain coupling <laughs> okay go on then go ahead but um yeah so um professor hassan who has written most of the papers about brain coupling 
between um, human beings says that, and he's probably said this just to be quite controversial, but he seems to believe it's true, is that the way your brain works depends on who you are hanging out with, who you are focusing on, who you're connected to. That okay. the, Your brain yeah. physiology changes to adapt to the one you're trying to understand. So okay. other people, so the student's, brains are going to be struggling to change the way they work to understand what's going on with you okay yeah and and that can affect the whole system sure okay yes from a sort of biological point of view right okay yeah but then it becomes like a relationship so you that can continue when you're not around so Okay, explain that. Maybe explore that a bit. That's very interesting. You can't just hint at something like that, Cindy. Um, spell it out for us. <laughs> spell it out for us. Um, so we'll have to go back to some animal studies to get to get to the simple bits. But first, firstly, when they started looking at, um, it's called hyperscanning. When you look at more than one brain at the same time and you correlate what's going on between them, and okay. When they first started doing this, they found that uh, brains came into coordination with each other and they started to work together. But then they found that in in societies, animal societies, where you had a dominant animal and subordinate animal, the dominant animal's brain didn't change at all. <laughs> it was really sort of oh. stubbornly right. you know, unchanged. And all the subordinates kind of tried to get a brain like his <laughs> right okay there's something kind of ugly about that i think but yeah but from a sort of <laughs> biological perspective if yes. you haven't got time to work out every problem yourself and if you've got a leader that knows more stuff is wiser yes. and or can think better you just fall into line it's much easier just fall into line and and we are human brains are incredibly prone to falling into line because that's how we've survived we followed the most intelligent uh, you know wise leader just like we do yeah yes i was gonna say there's a political example there or not we'll see yeah no but you know you had you your leader had to be had to be the best when it was a matter of survival you know sure you couldn't yeah. follow an idiot if you were living in a cave with uh, saber-toothed tigers hanging about, could you? So that that no. So that projection, that projection, um, or the or the the reshaping of everything as well. Obviously, that translates into the body. That's a kind of visceral yes. embodiment yes. of what you're you're experiencing. We're only measuring the brain, so that's what's lim- you know it's so limited because oh, really? they're only interested in the brain there. Whereas if oh, they right. you know, if they if you could measure the whole thing, which you can't. Because yeah. of the complexity, then you'd see, you know, the whole system is adjusting and trying to adjust. You you can't measure, excuse my ignorance on science, you, you can't measure changes in the nervous system or kind of plasticity in the tissues or anything like this as it changes. Measure, to- I mean, you can measure all of these things um, mm. individually. But what I'm saying is mm. that you... If you've got a hyper-scanning situation set up with the, the skull cap... And all the you know hundreds of little electrodes and another skull cap and hundreds of little electrodes and all the sure. computing technology they that is more than enough for them to deal with so <laughs> right, add okay. in you know skin changes, blood changes, heart rate changes right. 
Okay. So the complexity is overwhelming, uh, but they will. They, you know, they will get there. Once we got Neuralink, maybe we'll be able to yeah. think oh, fast well, enough to do it. Just download the information. Yeah. Okay. Oh. So because, I don't know if I've answered oh. your question. Oh yeah, intention and mm -hmm. projection. Yeah. So no research at all on that. Okay, but it, you you have experienced this yourself, and I've seen you use it in a class. Yeah. So you, but it, so you're aware of it, I'm I'm sure, as a process. I, I think it's part of the reciprocal relationship that happens when someone's trying to understand you and you're trying to inform them this information exchange when it becomes conscious and the intention is to exchange information i i think there is that flow in both directions um well that's what it feels like to me anyway what i'm interested in as well is the um amongst other things is the sheer volume of chi that you build the sheer volume of that kind of magnetic energy that you build around your body the stronger that projection seems to be. It's like when people are within that field, their kinesthetic or, um, uh, you know, their, their somatic empathy increases. And it, it, it seems to me that it can almost overpower somebody that's quite switched off from somatic empathy in a way. It's like they become engulfed in it. And the funny thing is, as I see the people, I guess like myself when I was younger, who are very removed from that kind of experience, that visceral experience, are the ones that become the sort of most emotionally overwhelmed by that process because they're kind of dragged into it. Um, and I, I, I still never come to terms with the kind of uh, ethics of that. You know what I mean? Like, should you project and drag someone into a process that their body or their mind is not used to doing or, or should you not? I guess if they, you know, there's, a, there's that contract that they've, you know, they've paid to come and be trained by you. And, sure. Yeah. And uh, and you know you are helping a shift, presumably, in that it's a new experience. Um, but no, there's. I try to explain in the book that biology really isn't isn't tackling um, chi fields at all. Um, you know, it's just way behind. Um, but you mentioned um, you mentioned electric. Uh, sorry, electromagnetic. Yeah, biomagnetic fields yeah. from that. The heart was mentioned in there and, and from the body. Yeah, they I mean they're gonna get there, but um, you know, it's it there's there's such a historical problem with um you know issues of vitalism and so on. Sure. Um but yeah, the the um bioelectricity is is a really hot topic and um they'll kind of get there. But it no, it fascinates me, the intention. I mean, one of the things I've always noticed about you is how strong that intention field is of yours. <laughs> I'm not subtle. I remember, yeah, us training in a park in Cardiff. And, um, yes, you were influencing my body from afar, which was really, yeah, strong. Yeah, sorry. But, you know, with the, well, with the knowledge that I have now or the different understanding, it's like, you know, that's my interpretation of what was going on. And, you know, my... Um, I'm I'm in, I'm interpreting the information, and by information I mean all sorts of information, on all levels. Um, yeah. So and 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 it would have been really unfamiliar information to me. I didn't know what was going on. Yeah, that that, and I I have the experience when I go to see uh, teachers that um, are working at a much higher level than me, and then just sometimes my body can mirror or 
um, empathize or, or generate or viscerally create what's going on. And sometimes it's so alien to me. Yeah. It's so far beyond my experience that it just causes pain, like physical um, pain. And I'll go home and I'll sit there in the, in the hotel room after the, the training or something. And I'm just, just uncomfortable all over my body. And I have to go through a process where I have to go see that person several times to go through it. And then eventually my body can translate what is trying to be taught. And then the pain goes away. And then there's some kind of shift. Um, which is uh, reading your writing actually kind of in a way opens a window and understanding that process for me a little bit. That's really interesting, isn't it? Is that you mm. have you I like the way you use that word. Your body has to translate it because that I think that's what's happening. Um, sure. You know, is that your body is a 3D simulator and we try out. Different three dimensional sensations of how it is to be this other person and uh sometimes we recognize it or we only recognize parts and sometimes we don't recognize it at all yes yes uh, yeah yeah and i often get that with you know i can have a, a client who's got great big cancerous tumors that i can see and i don't feel anything at all about them and presumably because i haven't had that in my experience Right. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So you don't know the feeling. It's not in your. I, don't, I can, database. you know, I can feel um, thermal heat with my hands, but I can't. I don't feel anything introceptively about sure. about that. Um, yeah, and, and therapists are often quite. Um, what's the word? Quite interested in the fact that they get clients that have similar experiences to their own, and I'm thinking, well, it's not a surprise, really, is it? <laughs> Sure. Yes. Okay. Yeah. 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 I can see that. And it, it's uh, there was there's a there was a, just pulling some other bits out of your your book. I don't want to jump around too much, but there was a, a couple of bit a few bits that I'm very fascinated by. And one of them was a very almost like a not a throwaway comment, but it was just something very small that you said in there um, that you won't empathize with somebody you don't like was the implication from. Uh, something that was written in there. I, if if I miss that was a research you, study say. of nurses. Yes. And, uh, you know, oh, yes, it wasn't, yes. wasn't my work at all. It was um, it was research study looking at um, empathy in nurses. And they found that completely unconsciously, they empathized much more readily with beautiful people and um, <laughs> polite people. <laughs> yes. I, well, don't think that's, that, I don't think that's, you know, shocking. Isn't that like in the news when uh, an ugly kid goes missing, they never mention it. But if she's beautiful, then child goes missing or something like that because they know that people don't care if it's ugly right i know i know we're very basic as creatures the thing um, what did you think about the uh you might not have noticed it because that was just a small paragraph as well but the research showing that people who take painkillers can't feel somatic empathy yes yeah i I really i actually have that written down as something i wanted to speak to you about if you take painkillers you can't somatic empathize and i wonder because it reduces your interoception it reduces somatic sensations so i guess that would apply to other things like people who are regularly using uh, drinking alcohol or any medications at all in, in theory, right? yeah so that would explain why you know you have someone who drinks a lot or not even drinks a lot drinks regularly i've seen people that don't really get drunk but they drink regularly which to me numbs them and you just watch all of their relationships break down yeah yeah, well, you can't life. you can't feel how anyone else is feeling with it. I mean, it was specific to paracetamol, wasn't it? The study, yes, which Very isn't specific. even that strong. And then I just thought, well, hasn't America got a pain killing epidemic? Sure, 
Well, on top of that, then you took it the other way and you, uh, the Botox was very interesting as yeah. well, a positive yeah. application of this. So if you, yes. so is, is, did I understand if you freeze, that's what Botox does, right? It kind of freezes the face or prevents you from creating a muscular shape of a particular emotion that prevents the feedback. So you no longer feel that feeling, right? Yes. It reduces your, <laughs> <laughs> reduces your emotionality. Right. Okay. You can't um, you can't imitate uh, people's facial expressions and therefore pick up all the emotions around you. That would that would imply that the actual mechanism of your face changing actually is a trigger to change the way you feel. Right. It is totally. It's called facial rather than a byproduct. Feedback. It's called facial feedback, and it's really okay. really important. Because, um, you know, we tend to think that the brain tells the body what to do and that's that. But actually, you know, the muscle pattern in your face informs your brain of how you're feeling. If you think about it, your brain is locked in a dark box. It can't sense anything. And it has no idea what's going on unless the body as a 3D simulator tells it what's going on, what's going on with other people. How does this other person feel? What's going to happen next? What are they going to do? And and so the body has to embody that and tell the brain. And the best way to tell the brain is by a body pattern, a simulation in the body. Right. It would imply that a lot of it, random thoughts are jumping in my head, is it would imply a lot of it might be to do with the face more than a lot of the rest of the body. Because if I think about, I worked in a hospital for a little while where people were paralyzed from the neck down, so they had no feeling whatsoever. But yet still, when you talk to them, uh, cognitively, full emotional range and everything, but their faces weren't paralyzed at all. So uh, it would imply I mean, that bit of you is important. Or maybe your body just readjusts. I think um, from what I could gather, it isn't just facial expressions. Um, okay. Because bodily, what they call bodily expressions of emotion, have the same effect. So if I slump, um, okay. I'll feel slightly less happy than if I'm stood up you know you're you're sure. informing your brain that the posture informs your brain of uh, right. how you're feeling as not just okay. facial expressions and and of course if you're imitating other people's um gestures which you know all the students are imitating your your uh proprioception your gesture um and so that their emotional landscape will change with that and okay. that's yeah strong stuff the like making the military stand upright and thrust their chest, which is yeah. a very angry posture, a confrontational, really. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah it's, the other thing that I thought was interesting, that you're talking about, um, what was the example you used? People watching, maybe they were watching sport or dance, and they were feeling the same twitches going in their muscles. Did you use dance or sport as an example? I apologize. Um, they were watching it, and they were feeling what the people on the TV were doing, feeling the dancers or feeling the sports. Yeah, that was the dancers. That was a bit of research yeah. on um, but they were dancers, like professional dancers, watching other dancers. Yes. Uh, so again, it's the somatosensory memory. Right. Do you see what I mean? It's in their database yeah, yeah, yeah. to recognize it and to feel it. Um, well, that's what it made me think of because I was thinking when I watch movies, I'm, I, they don't move me at all. Like I, I don't, I watch, it doesn't affect me. I don't feel anything. I don't feel anything. But if two characters start fighting on the screen, I don't know if I get emotionally involved, but muscles start twitching. I put my bicep go and yeah. my tricep, they twitch yeah. as if I'm kicking or striking. Yeah. But it's the only thing that ever does it. Nothing but else. That's, you know, that and you're thing. automatically understanding the fight 
um, in you know in your body. I'm the same with um, show jump show jumping. I used to do jumping on horses, and I can't watch show jumping because it you know my body gets in too much of a state. <laughs> sure. And show jump is not great for your spine, from what I've said either. All that land, no. yeah, no. Um, <laughs> but I can watch you know I can watch other sports that I haven't ever played. Um, okay without getting involved very interesting yeah 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 so as, as a as a therapist it would imply that you're you want to be opening up your experiences to many many things if you want to be as effective as you can right well or in some way it doesn't mean you want to have every illness think, under the sun but I think what it means is that you know it's like the old thing about you know the the wisdom thing is is that you've got life experience and you can draw on that um it's not something you learn in a book is it it's quite no. the old stuff <laughs> and it, yeah. it it really it's i find there might be another application for it for people to kind of understand a little bit about where maybe their life path might be which might be a little abstract but if i i can only you know i can only use a personally example but like looking at this i can understand why if i'm in a say a clinic working as a body worker or needles, acupuncture or something like that, I feel nothing for the person that I'm working on. Like there's no feedback, I don't, nothing. And yet if you stand with me in a class and I'm teaching Tai Chi or Qigong, I feel everything that's wrong with everybody in the class. But the there's no difference between the two that I just don't like being a therapist in that setting. It's not what I enjoy doing. So it feels like that part of my mechanism is switched off really. Yeah. You see think- what I mean? Like life path, it kind of, this is where I'm supposed to be and this is where I'm not supposed to be. Yeah, there's uh, there has been some research on how enjoyment uh, kind of uh, plays into somatic empathy. It's, it's almost like the, okay. you know, the nurses only feeling empathy for people they like. You know, there is there's a reward <laughs> system, you know, yes. in our biological bodies. There's a reward system of feeling pleasure when we're doing something that's, you know, going to take us in the right direction. And, and, uh, deviant. Yeah. and I think that will, you know, that goes on uh, at all levels. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm very good at switching off that somatic empathy, you know, because, and I think I learned it naturally. I don't think I, you know, I've only learned it recently. I learned it as a kid. Um, mm. You know, you might call it dissociation, but, but I learned, you know, if I don't want to feel other people's traumatic arguments, I just, I just disengage. That's probably something that people might want to know how you learned that. Do you, do you think there's any way, or is it something that's probably difficult to put into I words? Think it's the response to overwhelm as a kid, okay. is just to, and what I learned was to not pay attention to the mm. uncomfortable people. Yes, if you've got people around you with uncomfortable emotions, I just don't yes. pay any attention to them. Right, okay. <laughs> I've actually seen you do that, and I you don't. do it very well, yeah. I will just walk away. It's admirable. <laughs> Mid-sentence. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if you want me to say, but I do remember the amount of um, courses that I, I was on you with, and you just... You've just had enough of someone stupid and walked away. I saw you do it. And I, I never disagreed with you, actually, at all. I, I I thought you were well in your rights, actually. There's a lot of crazy people on these courses. Yeah, yeah. I don't need your mental health problems as well as my <laughs> Thank you. I'm off. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
how to deal with it. I think it is a matter of of um, you do have to get some mindfulness skills. You do have to get to know where your attention is, what your intentions are, you know, and that that and that means going right back into what are your unconscious intentions. So when I'm when I'm working on a client, mm-hmm. um, consciously I like to not have a a, a strict intention I like to not have a plan of what I'm going to do because I'm working intuitively experientially and so on sure. but obviously there's an intention to help you know and that intention enough is enough to trigger somatic empathy but I don't sustain somatic empathy through the whole hour of treatment that would be exhausting I yeah, just yeah. I get enough to feel oh yeah uh, that doesn't feel very nice or yeah, that needs, you know, a little bit of information and then switch off, get on with doing something about what I've just sensed. Um, I might switch it on again. And the way you switch it on and off is to is to engage with your own inquiry, your own inquisitiveness. Curiosity is a thing. You know, it's a thing that changes your, your whole system. Sure. So if you're curious about something, um, not only are all your senses aimed at finding out the answer, but this massive unconscious mind um, gets into gear to help you sure. solve your curiosity problem. And it's a massive, I was going to say it's a massive tool, but you know what I mean, it's a massive uh, resource. <laughs> sure, I get you. Yeah, and it, it that brings up that thing as well. It, it would it would make me think that a high degree of somatic empathy, because I'm sure everybody's on a, a scale somewhere, without any kind of cultivated mental governance. I don't want to say mental control, but you yeah. know what I mean. Yeah. Would would be dangerous almost. Yes. Or, or could be could be it could be detrimental to your own well being if you were constantly living in that state. Well, what I find is that people who don't know what's going on with they don't know it's somatic empathy and they're very sensitive is that they do a lot of drugs to try and deaden it all. Oh, all right. Yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. That, that, the amount of um, highly, I guess they would turn them, or I guess the unskilled way of saying it is highly emotional, tough guys, martial artists I know, who who numbed themselves with alcohol and drugs was was very, very high. Yeah. Or numbed themselves with, with changing into always feeling angry and confrontational, which became like a drug to replace what they were feeling. And when you scratch beneath the surface, there's a lot of pain there uh, yeah. in them. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's a painkiller epidemic for a reason. It's because, sure. you know, there's a lot of stuff going on that we, we're we not separated from. Mm. You know, when I watch the television or hear the news, I'm embodying the trauma. Sure. And, you know, this is 24-7 in the world. <laughs> so it's no wonder, you know, everyone um, wants to take whatever the latest painkiller is. And what I've learned is if they just replace the painkillers with Botox, they'll be okay, right? <laughs> That's the key. <laughs> so, That's so, uh, point. <laughs> the, there was one. There was one thing I wanted you to speak about a little bit more, if that was okay, particularly, was your example of Princess Diana. And I remember when, um, that was in the book, right? And I, I remember yeah. when Princess Diana passed away, uh, which was what year? 98, 97 or something 97, like that? 97, I think. Something. I was, I was a late teens anyway. And I, I think I'd, I was drunk the night before and I was a hangover. I think I passed out on my parents' couch. And I remember my mum my waking me up, shaking me, waking up and said, oh, Princess Diana died. And I remember thinking, we have a Princess Diana? I had no idea. Like I was so... 
other town. I, I didn't know anything about such things about the world, but I, I do remember that being really confused at how sad everybody was. And that's yeah. not to take away from the, the death of somebody. That's Those very were your psychopath days, were they? Just, yes, I guess so. But it, it was amazed at the sheer illogical amount of emotional outpouring I saw for a person who may have been wonderful but it was massive your neighbor was wonderful and she died the year before and the whole country didn't cry for her so I I, I was confused by it so seeing you like uh, link that to somatic empathy was very interesting well it's 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 um a modern example of what used to be called mass hysteria sure and, yeah um you know now they would call it um you know emotional contagion um, because what we were getting were newspapers, magazines with people crying all over the telly. We even had, you know, journalists on BBC who couldn't talk because they were so choked up. And it's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't that different when the Queen died. And as a non-royalist, I was quite confused about that too. But it was a very similar situation, wasn't it? Uh, There's nothing near as big as Princess Diana. I mean, it, the thing about Princess Diana mass hysteria was that it went on for a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, even a month later, people were choking up about it, and it's and I sure. caught it, and I I'm you know like you, I'm neither here nor there about them, but um, um, I could I could feel the sadness. So that is that is that. Do you think that was partially mirroring an individual, or sorry, mirroring the wrong? Well, it's not mirror neurons you're talking about. Is it mirroring somebody individually that you're seeing on the news? Like that, or is it more a collective? The imagery kind of brain you're constantly shift. surrounded by those facial expressions of sadness, hmm. um, the sound, the voices of sadness, and constantly, um, hmm. and uh, yeah, the emotional contagion is really strong um, in our in our species. You know, and what worries me at the moment is this, you know, mass fear that um, everyone is sure. uh, embedded. You know, okay, yes, and how, to, how to distance our attention from that, yeah, and then the opposite you get the other end of the scale where if you watch people who watch a lot of um, going back to movies, people a lot of people are getting machine gunned down on mass action films or, or video games where the, the, the computer game characters don't obviously because they're computer graphical characters, they don't have a full spread of real emotions, so people are or actors, you know, like. Rambo's going to look like I'm really old, but you know what I mean? And actually, I think he still makes films. But, you know, like those kind of characters emotionlessly killing people. I know. Uh, I guess that must be kind of empathised or mirrored to some extent, extent in people as well, right? I think it's a real danger. And, um, you know, I found, I found a study of um, children doing gaming where, I mean, obviously a gamer is somatically... Um, empathizing in order to understand the game. Mm. You know, in order to win the game, you've got to predict what the characters are going to do next. And so you really have to get, you know, your 3D simulator gets fully into how they're going to move next, what they're going to do next. So that is full on somatic empathy with the character who is fictional and um, can often perform uh, you know actions that humans can't perform and mm-hmm. it's all run by AI so your brain is trying to couple with artificial intelligence the whole time and we don't know what's going to happen as the brain struggles to couple with artificial intelligence um, sure. where was I going with that the <laughs> oh, I was just asking I was 
asking about like seeing, um, I guess, an act like killing that should be connected to an emotional response yeah. that is then disconnected by somebody doing it unemotionally. If yeah. You know what I mean. Well, the worst thing is those um, these poor drone soldiers. You know, the the sure. soldiers that operate drone um, drones from a distance, and so they are they are involved in killing people thousands of miles away and mm. from their own home you know and then they'll go back down and have dinner with their kids and whatever and the, there's there's huge problems with PTSD with these guys who are killing without emotion and there is a natural emotion they are they are embodying the emotion and it's not being processed or dealt with and what's awful is at the moment they're classified as office workers and so they're not given any psychological what? help or mental health support i know because they're you not can't in call the a drone field. bomber an office worker they're not in the field are they so right okay hmm. yeah i'm not i'm not yeah i'm not a fan of all this kind of movement towards that direction no i mean i don't know much about drone bombers obviously but i uh, having watched uh my brother and other people get lost in in video games and seeing uh, and students as well, young male students who who have been usually male, who've been very involved in these kind of games. And there's a, there is a <laughs> like a little uh, uh, sort of zombified quality to them yeah, when, I mean, when I'm you, trying to communicate with them. Yeah. Well, if the if the neuroscientists are right, and that yes. your brain, um, the way your brain works reflects the brains that you're connected to. If you're connected to um, the AI of a game, that's what your brain is like. You know, you're losing your uh, the breadth of human functioning if you're mm. not interacting with human beings. I, w- I was lucky enough that Sonic the Hedgehog wasn't technical enough to connect with when I was a kid, so video games weren't good enough to do that to me, really. Yeah. yeah. A bit harder now. But it's, actually, it's, very, it's such a lucrative business. It's very hard to find research that looks at any problems. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, I guess finances behind it and corporations and stuff. So I I have a theory. I have a theory. And um, I'd be quite interested if you could pull it apart, if you could try, which would would be good. It's (laughs) that sort of it is sort of ties to this. I don't know. It's just been something I've been thinking about lately. And I think it kind of ties into this somatic empathy is kind of looking at compassion versus cruelty in people. And when I'm talking about compassion, I don't necessarily mean the sort of deep connection to divinity that people might talk about, sort of Christ-like compassion. I'm talking a more down-to-earth compassion that people have for each other. I think that my theory is that compassion on that level has to have a basis in empathy first to be able to connect with, to express that compassion. And I think sometimes what happens with compassion is if you feel overwhelmed by the experience that you have from somebody, you kind of switch off, and often I think it turns into cruelty. So there's a kind of the flip side comes out. So my working theory, I guess, is that because we're now via the internet exposed to so much pain across the entire world rather than just our community, like I know about a, a lorry that flipped over and two people died in Egypt or something last week, things that I, I'm not really designed to know neurologically, that because we're constantly overwhelmed by so much of this stuff we're supposed to feel, that it kind of switches into the cruelty. So compassion gets switched off, if you get what I mean. Yeah, I mean, um, I I feel a similar concern. Um, there, there isn't an awful lot of research on it, but I that's what I feel is that um, when 
you know, when we're overloaded with our own somatic empathy about the world, we have to shut it down because otherwise, um, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to function. And um, people in situations where they have to, I mean, the caring industry, I don't know why, but it, it you know, it, it's got a huge problem with cruelty and sure. um, you know, the, the, the figures are, are appalling and people are trying to find out social scientists are trying to find out, you know, why, I mean, it's not that cruel people are attracted to the, these situations or mm. is it, you know, or, um, or, or your theory that they, they go in as, as normal caring people and, and they get overwhelmed and that cruelty is some sort of weird uh, shut down, go away mechanism. Um, but no, it's, it's a field of ongoing inquiry. And um, I think that there is, there is that danger that we go past shutdown into, and I think cruelty and attack might be the fight and flight bit. You know, if you get so, um, if you get triggered by strong emotional feelings of concern, then Perhaps you can trigger that fight bit of the fight and flight, you know, where you're hitting out um, at the thing that needs your sympathy rather than your violence. But uh... I, I felt it in another way as well. I mean, I, I couldn't, I couldn't ever profess to have the same pressures under me as a sort of frontline care worker for sure. They're, they're having <laughs> seen what their work life is like. It's it's pretty uh, over the top stressful. Really? But even as a situation where I'm I'm teaching. Sometimes uh, I feel the pressure of a lot of people either wanting something or wanting help or, or something, because no matter how much you present yourself as like, I'm here to teach mechanics, which, as you know, I've been trying to say for years, there's always an underlying feeling from a lot of people. They want help with something. I need help. I need to change. I'm in trouble. I'm in strife. And my heart, for want of a better word, tells me that I need to be there for these people and empathize with them and connect. And if I'm not tired or overwhelmed, I can do that. And actually, I feel a great kind of bliss, for want of a better word, that arises when I'm working with people because I'm just there for them and trying to, trying to work with them. But then the opposite happens. Then I get overwhelmed. Maybe it's too long. I did my usual thing, made the course too big, too long. And then what kicks in is the empathy switches off. I think as a self-defense mechanism. I can feel less. I feel less inside me too. Like I feel less in them. So therefore my inner awareness turns off too. It's like my lack of compassion or my lack of empathy switches off my ability to work with the insides of my body. So my cultivation suffers. And then I feel Jiminy Cricket, you know, the conscience is there saying you're doing a bad job for these people and you're not empathizing for these people. And then that's what reaction wise brings out my cruelty. It's like my guilt produces this mm. kind of venom that I have to kind of know that's the time that I need to step away from everything. Yeah. And I don't know if it's the same. It's a personal thing, but it's, and I've learned to manage it better as the years go on. But I wonder if that is mapped out on a larger scale to people that are constantly bombarded by all this pain, you know, because yeah. guilt, guilt is a thing that really stings us, <laughs> like, obviously. Yeah, no, I, I, that sounds highly plausible because we are constantly bombarded, yeah. And um, I know that, you know, studies on doctors, you know, GPs, um, when, they're, when they see over 100 people a day, they start to just not give a toss for something. <laughs> you know, oh. just can't. There's a limit to how much you can care yes. um, before, before it starts to be harmful. And, you know, I guess that's why people have, 
uh, you know, you should have a little entourage of people that protect you, you know. Yeah, I do actually. Yeah, I do. <laughs> things are getting better. Things are getting better. I'm also better at, I'm also, not that I want to turn this into anything about me, but I'm, I'm better at managing it than I used to because I can maybe, maybe even, even reading your book the last few days um, has been really helpful to put a framework on it. And whether it's an accurate framework or not for me, yeah. at the moment, it's a useful one. And uh, it, I think it's something I felt for a while and I've had to learn how to manage better. And it's just distancing. You need to take yourself away. And when you take yourself away, you have to take yourself away from online as well, because otherwise you're just being bombarded with other people's pain. And the next thing you're looking at the massacre in Myanmar or whatever, and it's like Ukraine and Gaza, and then it's just overloaded again. And, and you need that break from it all, I think. So, um, are you aware that um, how you're processing, you know, when you're standing in front of a, mm. a room full of students, is it, do you feel when you look at someone or is it, you know, do you know how you're, somatic empathy works best you know what kind of do you need to be near people no I need to have visual connection for me I think I'm a visual person is this different for different people I don't know that's why I'm asking okay for me it's visual I'll often if I'm if I'm well lots of energy not taught lots uh so I'm at my optimum I think it's fair to say that if I'm stood in front of a class and I look at someone if I don't know them, then there's an overwhelming feeling something of whatever is going on for them underneath. And I will feel their sadness or their grief or or sometimes their nervousness quite often because I seem to make people nervous for You're some staring reason. staring at them. <laughs> probably. There's probably that. And I think it, oddly, my reaction is it makes me smile. I feel something opens up inside me and I feel a big grin and then I see them react and then they relax and then they open up too. So I think it's, the vision and the smile, I think, is the connection there between me and the the person. I think. Mm. How about you? You teach. You can you can uh, feel somatic empathy just by thinking about someone, yeah. If I like them. Yeah, that's that thing. Yeah. If I like them, yeah. How about you? What do you, you teach? What's your What's your? Yeah, experience? I mean, I. Um, I think vision is really important, but I. Okay. Um, I use a lot of visual cues, I think. Um, but also listening and smelling, you know, and I, I'm really close to my clients, so you know, I'm touching Sorry. them, and of course, contact this and this 3D kinesthetic contact. So I've got both hands on them, and each hand is doing a different thing, and I'm moving, and my attention and intention is changing. So, this the sort of perceptual landscape is really complex. Um, and stuffed full of information. And so yeah, what will be yeah, happening my simulation, my interoception will be flashing through all sorts of different changes. And it's like, which one am I interested in? Which which bits are meaningful and which aren't? And that's where practice and so on comes in. Uh, yeah. You're, I remember you're much more um, – you're definitely – much more visual than me as well like you used to you would I think it's fair to say your brain or something and you translates what you're feeling into imagery for you as well right like archetypal imagery and things yeah yeah. so what what do you think Uh, mine doesn't do that Uh, mine is more uh, no not at all I mine is just I just know it's like someone's told me it's like I'm recalling something somebody has told me about someone so maybe um 
maybe you could explain to us the nature or explain to me the nature of that kind of visual architecture. Because I know you see things like skull and crossbones and stuff like yeah. this, right? Those kind of yeah. symbols. Even. That's not good, by the way. <laughs> no, I know. No, I was quite glad you've never said that. Never said you've said that around me. So. Um, Flamingos. So what I, what I, I mean. think is going on is that I get, um, you know, I, my body simulates my perception of this other person mm. and that process is ongoing so it trawls through lots of different simulations until there's something recognizable mm. okay yeah so it's like turning a radio dial until you find a channel and sometimes i don't find a channel at all and it's just a load of nonsense just a load of yuck you know um but sometimes there are there's a really clear interpretation that my unconscious makes um so for example i could be working on someone and i'm i'm thinking oh i haven't got a clue what's going on here and then i'll see in my mind's eye this word come right across in front of me in big letters with an exclamation mark and it's almost like my unconscious treats me like i'm an idiot you know it's like <laughs> and I'm like, oh, i don't know what's going on you know and it goes Duh. sure there's some sort of, you know, my unconscious really struggles to communicate with the little conscious part of my mind. And the vis the visual stuff is a way of trying to communicate with the conscious part. Um, famous neuroscientist David Chalmers says that the, our conscious mind is like a broom cupboard in the mansion of the mind. You know, so most of the right. mind is like out of your awareness and sure. mine uh tries really hard to communicate with the broom cupboard and it will come <laughs> up with imagery that it that it knows i'll go oh yeah right i get that or a word or i'll hear a word you know and it it's not it's not that these things are being sent to me from anywhere else you know i'm my unconscious is creating them just to try and communicate with my tiny little broom cupboard it would be like the hun based language in sort of Taoist terminology, right, or or something like that, right. I guess. Yeah. So do you do you, you must it must after a while create a shared language a language for you. So for example, like skull and crossbones or something, which you know even I can understand that's not great with my yeah. dim brain. If you see a skull and crossbones, I'm presuming if that comes up multiple times, you must start to develop almost a conscious language as well as what you're picking up somatically. Well, what's interesting is that some of the imagery. It didn't mean anything to me until I kind of, I don't know, like I was working on a woman and um, a really strong image of a bird's nest yeah. with no birds in it and all these birds flying about above it. Now, to me, that instantly meant crazy, <laughs> crazy. <laughs> sure. You know, I want the birds to settle in the nest. I don't want them flapping about. Yeah. Um. And I thought that that was a really kind of personal, individual interpretation, you know, birds flapping about and whatever. But apparently it's quite archetypal, that image of, you know, being unsettled and so on. So okay. so I think that, you know, there, there's that tapping into imagery that is quite shared between us as a species. It's almost like taking dream analysis and bringing it through to the conscious touch in a, in a way, right? Totally. I think yeah. it's very likely the same thing hmm. yeah. yeah it's a it's an interesting phenomenon understanding how different people translate it and having no 
visual feedback in that way. That's just not my nature. I can connect with someone visually, but I don't. My brain doesn't interpret it in that way for me. Um, I'm, well, you've I'm cut that out, haven't you? You've gone straight to the knowing, which is where you want to be. Whereas I'm faffing about going, well, what does that mean? <laughs> I quite like to see the skull and crossbones, actually, though. <laughs> sounds quite fun. Yeah. And as you say, there can be really sophisticated and detailed information that you know. Mm. Um, you know, we're not just picking up anxiety or, you know, uh, anything broad. We can, you know, you can infer really sophisticated information about other people using this really ancient form of intelligence. And I just love the fact that, you know, the evidence is coming in now that other, you know, our companion animals do this with us. And you know. Sure. It, 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 it reminds me of uh, when, I, when I speak to uh, my teacher and I ask him very much about how to progress in a general way, like as a, as a practitioner, as a developer, what, what do I need? And, and his answer consistently for the last couple of years has been to feel other people's things more and to learn to like people more, essentially, has been the instructions. So I'm working on it. I'm working on it. But, but that it's, it strikes me as those are the two things that are needed for somatic empathy, right? Um, two of them, I would say. I mean, you know, I'm a loner. <laughs> I live alone. I think, there's, I, think, you know, I think being sensitive somatic empath goes with the need to live alone. Sure. Um, yeah do you need to like I do like people I just don't like to feel their stuff all the time <laughs> I think I think uh I think the view of my my teacher is not that I don't like people but that I think he wants a higher degree of connection for me so therefore I think his desire is that I have to break down the barriers that create contention between me and others so that there's a greater degree of connection and feeling i i think is is the instruction mm. almost uh the same as many religions or spiritual traditions have said essentially isn't it that sort of loving or compassion for all beings is ultimately the the way to move through to connection with spirit right yeah and i think you know as you've been saying all along the really important thing is to you know is that we are connected and that our bodies do respond to each other um and that that isn't anything fluffy it's quite powerful it's quite you know it's quite primal mm -hmm. and to be and to learn how to turn that up and down so that we stay healthy okay yes you know, um well maybe maybe that's a good thing to to be quite nice if we could sort of can encapsulate that maybe um you could kind of bring this all together by giving us an explanation, because obviously I think a lot of people hearing this are going to be very interested in this concept, but maybe they've had flashes of it and maybe they've shut it off or maybe someone is struggling with it. I'm sure you've had people contact you struggling with this concept. Do you have any, I know it's very on the spot and I always hate it when I do interviews and people ask me these kind of questions, but on the spot, would you have any guidance for anybody how to work with this or integrate it into what they're doing if they're say a therapist or a practitioner or a cultivator or something yeah i think um the first thing to do is to just notice when it happens and um and not mm, not try and over interpret it so one of the mm. ways people get mm. bogged down is that they're amazed at how sensitive they are 
and they really improve yeah. themselves at how sensitive they are. <laughs> I want to keep telling everybody how amazingly sensitive they are and over-interpreting, you know, oh, I could feel that person's loss, you know, and I could feel, that, you know. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, but that's getting in the way now. So once you know that that's happening, you can just um, be more kind of casually observant of it. So, um, you know, if you're feeling uncomfortable, just glancing around as to uh, who who in your life could be contributing to that because it could be your own discomfort might be nothing to do with anybody else in the room um and just starting to learn and it has to be trial and error there isn't a kind of short way I can't teach people how to do it is the trial and error of yours and somebody else's yours and somebody else's so um what as I said what I did for years was um to notice during shiatsu if I had a strong feeling I would just check with the person and um and I and that gave me the confidence to know okay so when that happens that's somatic empathy uh and then I would notice it in the social situation and and I would realize that I'm shifting my attention I'm not looking at them you know and I'm kind of closing down I don't want to feel any more of that but I don't avoid people that make me uncomfortable anymore you know like uh you were saying um, because I've got slightly more confidence that I can cope with it afterwards so I'm I don't mind sharing a really unpleasant you know even really unpleasant mental state with someone um, because I'm I'm more confident that I can shift that uh, after we've separated or whatever so I I think being scared of someone because you might catch something from them is not good because it emphasizes it it in um yeah amplifies your neuroception which is looking for danger so your whole system will be geared up mm. to look for danger so if you're scared of someone if you're scared of catching bad stuff from someone it will make things worse for you so i think you have to develop a kind of confidence that you know, nothing terrible is going to happen. You must, you might feel bad for a while, but you'll get over I think it. That's, that's that's really really good advice. That's because uh, the amount of people who have that mindset. Whereas I've I've like yourself experienced things that linger afterwards. You know, and it's like, <laughs> and then my attitude if I wake up in the morning is still there. As I just think, oh, you muppet, why did you let it stick? And that's always been my mindset. And then it just goes rather than yeah concerning myself at oh, it's going to turn into whatever you yeah know. i think it's really important to shift yourself from being a victim mm. to being uh you know a simulator you're just a 3d simulator mm. i um, like that <laughs> oh that's great that's really good well is there anything you want to tell anybody obviously can you hold your book up hold your book up again because i i have a copy of no it's the right way around it's got oh, a blue stripe across it oh i see that's saying it's, it's the for, proof uh, copy yeah. So Cindy Engel, PhD, she is a lady of great education, sophistication and intelligence compared to myself, um, called Another Self, How Your Body Helps You Understand Others. Uh, like I said, I read it the last few days. I don't read, actually. I can't stand reading because every time I pick up a book, it's crap. But I actually really enjoyed this one. I thought this was um, highly beneficial and I could highly recommend people reading it. Um, because I, I think especially in the field we're in, I think it's great. So I can highly recommend it for sure. Is there anything else you want to advertise to people that you're doing? No, no, that's no. We've spoken for ages now. 
oh, come on, you have a class in Go where? <laughs> come on, come on. And you do an online course. I know you do. Um, yes, I've got, um, yeah, because <laughs> the book is quite sort of dense and there's a lot of information in there and not everyone likes reading. And so I've got an online course, which is a video. Uh, so you can just watch and listen, get the same sort of information. Um, and there'll be a little ebook, which, which is sort of a, a sort of simpler version, a simplified version of all this stuff. So there should be three different formats coming out. There's two, two at the moment. Okay, but, great. That's really good. Thank you very much for having me on. It's been great to see you. No, it's been nice chatting. It's been great. Every 20 years we should get together. When did I last see you? Like it was two, only three four years, years ago, ago, actually. It was just before COVID. A wizard. Back yeah. when everybody was frightened of catching things off of each other. Yeah, In sure. Portugal. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And before that, probably like China or Thailand or something. So, yeah. 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 So I, I will put links to all of your stuff under this. So anybody watching this who's interested in what uh, Cindy does, then uh, you can find it underneath this video. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Cindy. Great speaking Bye. to you. And thanks for sharing all of this.